So is she practicing now as a dentist? Well, she's doing her residency in pediatric dentistry. So it's oh, a, a, cool. a three-year residency. Wow, that's yeah. awesome. And she's in her last year of that, just started her last year. Yeah, I have all the admiration in the world for pediatric dentists because I think you're trying to get kids to do the hardest thing you could get kids to do, which <laughs> is know. to sit perfectly still in an uncomfortable <laughs> position and subject them to added discomfort and somehow do it in a way that makes them feel happy and cheerful and appreciated and everything. It is, it is so amazing. hard. I could not yeah. do her job. I, don't, I just yeah. don't have the patience for it. Yeah, I don't think I, I barely have the patience for my own kids, let alone a bunch of other people's kids. Yeah. So. Hi, I'm Aaron Miller, and this is How to Help, a podcast about having a life and career of meaning, virtue, and impact. This is season one, episode four, Blowing the Whistle. How to Help is sponsored by Merit Leadership, home of the Business Ethics Field Guide. The odds are very high that you've had your blood drawn at some point in your life. I don't find it terribly uncomfortable, but my wife hates it. To be clear, she is a strong, confident woman who has raised four boys. Discomfort is not foreign to her. But for whatever reason, having her blood drawn is too much. I just asked her now to explain it, and she was at a loss for the right words. After some groans and sighs, she finally settled on tiny violence which is perhaps the best description of the experience that I've ever heard. Of course, for many people, having blood drawn is more than just a discomfort. It's a constant difficult reality. Easing that experience could improve the 400 million blood draws that happen every year in the U.S. alone. But that's just the beginning. Also imagine being able to test blood in much smaller samples with portable lab equipment. Technology like that would change the world. This was the exact vision of the company Theranos and its founder, Elizabeth Holmes. You've probably heard of her and how she raised a billion dollars in startup capital. If so, you also heard how her entire company failed to produce a functioning technology, while she covered it by defrauding her customers and investors. The Theranos story was told in the best-selling book Bad Blood by John Carreyrou and in the HBO documentary The Inventor was also covered in the popular podcast, The Dropout. Holmes is currently facing criminal charges with the trial to start in the coming months. But for a small handful of whistleblowers, Theranos might still be defrauding investors and threatening the safety of its customers. One of those whistleblowers is Tyler Schultz, who at the time was just a young graduate working in one of the labs. He's my guest today. I'm excited to share this interview with Tyler, where we talked about his harrowing experience blowing the whistle on one of the biggest corporate frauds of our time. I first asked him to talk about the original vision of Theranos and why the idea is still so compelling today. So yeah, just really quickly, the vision was anything that a central laboratory could do, you could do in a single drop of blood and you could do it in point of care settings, meaning you could get that information like where you actually needed to have it. So that could be in a battlefield, for instance, or in a medevac helicopter, or perhaps in a, in a doctor's office or in an operating room or in a Walgreens, or maybe even in your home one day. So the, the power of that is just immense. I think one of, my, the, one of my favorite tweets that I've seen recently was something that said, 
Imagine if there was a device that could diagnose 300 different diseases from a single drop of blood. There are no such devices. There are no such devices. <laughs> I can't say it right. <laughs> but imagine right now in the middle of this pandemic, imagine if we had a technology that you could put in Walgreens or in your home or bathroom even where you could go get tested for COVID-19 and get the results within four hours. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just COVID, right? I mean, I know that there are a lot of blood tests that are used for detecting cancer, uh, obviously all kinds of communicable diseases. It feels like it, ha- having that really quick and, and and efficient and hopefully even also more inexpensive access to blood testing really could change the world in a dramatic yeah. way. Oh, it absolutely could. I mean, the first time that I met Elizabeth and she gave me this pitch, I just immediately started coming up with ideas of, mm. of different applications that you could use for this, different places you could put it. And really, once you open those doors, the opportunity is enormous. This sounds amazing, doesn't it? You can see why the vision being sold by Elizabeth Holmes was so energizing. Why couldn't Theranos get it to work? So what makes it really hard is that there's some tests use different ways of measuring things. So you first have to have one product or one technology that is able to measure things in different ways. So for instance, the COVID, the active COVID test is a DNA-based technology where you're looking for the, well, actually RNA from this virus. Whereas the antibody test, you're looking for antibodies that your body develops against the virus. And you measure those two things in very, very different ways. Hmm. So part of the problem that Theranos had was trying to combine these different assay types all into one box. Just so you know, an assay is the medical term for a lab test, like the kind that Theranos was trying to do. Here's where Tyler helps us understand why the technology was so unbelievably hard. So you had you had amino assays, you had nucleic acid assays, you had general chemistry assays, and the specifics of those don't really matter to the average listener, but essentially you're trying to do a whole bunch of different types of things all at the same time. And even within one of those groups, there's subgroups of different ways to do things. So there's competitive amino assays and direct amino assays and sandwich amino assays. And then it comes down to having repeatability. And at Theranos, I think one of biggest challenges we faced was repeatability. Mm. And you just have a sequence of events that have to happen exactly the same way every single time in order for you to get a result that is actually meaningful. The idea was that the Theranos machine, called the Edison, would be capable of all these different tests. And in fact, this is what Elizabeth Holmes was telling the world her machine could do. But that wasn't how it worked in reality. So... One of the things that I think isn't emphasized enough is that the Theranos platform wasn't a standalone product. So before we even put the sample into a Theranos device, first, a human would get this little nanotainer and we would put it in a centrifuge. Then a human would go in with a pipette and try to take out a very small amount of serum without disrupting the red blood cells. Then a human would put it into a, a different nanotainer and put it inside of this robotic device that then pipetted the sample out of the nanotainer and into the Theranos cartridge. And then someone would take that cartridge and put it into the Theranos device. And then that de- the Theranos device had all kinds of problems on its own with temperature, with pieces of it literally falling off and getting stuck in the gears. But there are tons of ways that human 
differences between humans to humans could impact the results. So one simple example would be you take a cartridge out of the refrigerator and you put it directly into the Theranos product. Well, that cartridge is still cold because it's it just came out of the refrigerator. So mm-hmm. some people started taking these things out and leaving them out on the bench top for half an hour before they would use them so they would come to room temperature. But not everybody was doing that. We just had kind of scientists thinking, oh, I think that the temperature might make a difference, so I'm going to let it warm up to room temperature. And then some people started putting it in an, in an oven that was heated to like 37 degrees before they put it in the Theranos uh-huh. device. So we didn't really have very good like standard operating procedures that everyone just followed to the T. So there's just, you know, there's so many of these factors that you wouldn't ever, that you wouldn't immediately think of that can impact the quality of a result. So repeatability is tough. And then, you know, just the the dream of doing hundreds of things from a single drop of blood is is so difficult because every test is going to require, you know, X amount of blood. Right. So then you end up having to dilute the blood, which means you have to have a very sensitive technology in order to actually measure the thing you want to measure after it's been diluted. Or you try to truly measure all of those things simultaneously without splitting it up into separate tests. But then you get things like cross-reactivity problems that I don't really need to get into. But yeah. there's just a million ways for it to fail. Is the short answer is there are a million ways for something like this to fail, and you have to make sure that it works every single time. So you have to just have a very controlled process, and I don't think we ever we we didn't have the technology that could enable us to do that, and we didn't have the right processes in place. I mean, maybe someday we'll have a machine like the size of the Edison, but why not start with one or two common tests rather than trying to do everything all at once? I actually think that's a really great idea. <laughs> I think it is not a very good business model to think that you are going to upend the entire laboratory diagnostic industry in one fell swoop. And that's essentially what Theranos was trying to do. You know, Quest or either Quest or LabCorp, I forget which one, had a $9 billion valuation. And I'm pretty sure that's where the Theranos $9 billion valuation came from. They they said, Quest is worth $9 billion and we're going to put Quest out of business. So now we are worth $9 billion. So they were trying to do everything that those yeah. labs could do in a single drop of blood. And I think it, it, that, that doing that is an impossible task. And the, a better way to go about it is to find one very specific market where you can make an impact, find success in that market, show the technology works, learn from it, and then grow into the next market and move much more slowly. And this is exactly what Tyler is doing now. After leaving Theranos, and once the legal threats went away, He co-founded a company called Flux Biosciences. The goal is to see through the same ideas behind Theranos, but with better science, focus, and transparency. Yeah, so essentially after I left Theranos, I went back to a professor that I had at Stanford and I just said, hey, can I come start working in your lab? And so I, I I just joined his lab. I wasn't a student. I was just there to do research. Essentially, they, they repurposed computer hard drive technology. So magnets that usually flip up and down to store zeros and ones mm-hmm. in, in a computer hard drive, we would instead use magnetically labeled antibodies would bind to the surface of those sensors. So they flipped based on a biological reaction rather than from a computer read-write head. 
And those sensors turned out to be extremely sensitive. They were quantitative and they're really small. So you can fit a lot of them in a small area. So you're multiplexable. So all of a sudden it's starting to sound a lot like Theranos where you can (laughs) accurately, sensitively, quantitatively measure a lot of things. And when I joined the lab, we, we put a lot of effort into developing the point of care version of this. So being able to do all of those things in the place where you need the information. So like a doctor's office or at home or in in a grocery store or something like that. So I say that Elizabeth was so good at selling a vision that I'm still sold on the vision and I'm still chasing (laughs) after it, but just going about it in a very different way. And I think there are a few very key differences between Flux and Theranos. One is that the professor who is my co-founder has been publishing papers and filing patents on this technology for nearly 20 years. Wow. And Elizabeth didn't license any IP from Stanford. So she supposedly dropped out and then came up with this revolutionary technology somehow, never published any peer-reviewed papers on it. So there was no third-party validation. And then the other big difference is just we're trying to find small markets where we can make a big difference and then grow market by market. So where are they starting? What problem is important enough that also lines up with what this technology can do? Flux has turned its attention to women who are trying to conceive. We are initially planning on using these sensors to measure a panel of female fertility hormones at home. And we we really like this market because the tools that are available to women over the counter are frankly not very good. They're typically lines that appear or don't appear. And so if you think about it, those manufacturers have to develop one test that is supposed one cutoff level where the line appears or doesn't appear that supposedly works for every woman in the entire world. And what we know about menstrual cycles, even cycle to cycle or woman to women, is that the the cycles have a lot of variation. And because we're quantitative, we can actually see that very those variations. And because we can measure multiple things at the same time, we can get a much better picture. And we're initially specifically focusing on on measuring biomarkers that will let us know if a woman is actually ovulating or not. And it turns out that anovulatory disorders is the leading cause of female factor infertility. And we, we think that we can help diagnose that much earlier than what is current practice. And I mean, it's a very frustrating process as well, because people end up having these ideas of having a a very specific family timeline, and -hmm. it gets completely disrupted because it turns out that having a baby is way harder than than what your fifth grade teacher taught you when you first learned about sex ed. (laughs) It turns out to be a lot more difficult than that. It takes a lot more time. And right now, you're just supposed to try for a year before a fertility doctor will really consider even running a blood test. But so from our perspective, we there, we believe that there are hormones you can measure even before you start trying to get pregnant that would, you know, let you know if, if you're going to have a high chance of success or not and, and potentially improve your your chances of conceiving much earlier. Starting a company in Silicon Valley has always been about telling a good story. That's what every startup founder does to win investors. And that's what Elizabeth Holmes was especially good at doing. There's now a well-known name for it. Fake it till you make it. It's obviously an idea that at best flirts with dishonesty and at worst embraces it. 
what's your perspective on Silicon Valley culture generally as it relates to ethics and, and transparency? Does fake it till you make it create dangers or is it just simple confidence? Yeah, those are all uh, really great questions. So just first and foremost, I've met a lot of other startup founders and I can't think of a single one where I thought this person is just trying to take money from people for the sake of taking money from people. So I, I don't think there are many startup founders that are really out there to defraud people. Yeah. But like you did mention, there is this fake it to your make it culture. And I think the problem with fake it to your make it is that for a lot of tech companies, it actually worked. I think when you're promising a software product, it's easier to say we have this feature when you don't quite have it yet, but you can be very confident that a smart software engineer will be able to build it. Right. With Theranos, it was very different because she was saying, we have this feature that we can you know, diagnose or measure 300 things from a single drop of blood. But that was so far away from reality. So it was fake it till you make it, but it was just on a completely different scale than what is typically seen in these smaller tech type startups. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but I, yeah. I do think that Elizabeth kind of took something that was part of the Silicon Valley tech culture and just took it way too far. This fake it till you make it was to the extent that Theranos was offering tests that were, I don't know the exact number, but somewhere around $2, you know, really cheap. And we would get those samples and we would just send it to UCSF and UCSF mm. would charge us $300 oh my to run that test. And meanwhile, we're saying that we ran that test for $2 in our laboratory on this revolutionary technology. That's a so, bad business model. <laughs> it's a bad business model. We were bleeding money. And I, I kind of make this joke that it was socialized medicine because you had a bunch of billionaires who were paying for the blood tests of people who walked into the Theranos wellness centers. Yeah, not knowing they were doing that, but they were doing not it. Not knowing, yeah. Without knowing it, they were they were funding yeah. socialized medicine. <laughs> That's great. So Theranos at its peak had 800 employees. How did the lie endure for so long? Surely there must have been signals that things weren't right. I mean, looking back, there were so many red flags that I didn't see. Because when I was an intern, I'd never worked with a Theranos device. So I didn't have that kind of inside knowledge of what the technology was really capable of. Right. But there were other cultural red flags that I should have seen. And I think probably the biggest one was that I was working with people who had senior scientists as their title who had never seen the product they were working on. They had never oh seen the Theranos product and they had been there for years, were senior scientists and had actually no idea what the technology was. That's a huge red flag to me, especially for, for a company that, it, that needs to have a scientific community in order to function. You can't innovate without scientists being able to talk to each other, without scientists even really knowing the end product that they're working on. So the claim was they just, they wanted to keep the trade secrets on, you know, like a need to know basis. And they just wanted to reduce the potential for leaks getting out. But then I remember there was a, one specific incident where the light went out in the lab. And 
the Theranos product, the Theranos devices were behind these barricades. So I could walk into the lab that had the Theranos that had a version of this Edison device, but it was behind a 10 foot high barricade. And it was kind of on the honor system that I was not supposed to just like walk through this maze of barricades to find the Edison. Hmm. But I remember on one occasion, a light went out. And so an electrician comes in, he's escorted by security. He puts up this 12 foot ladder, climbs to the top, fixes the light bulb. And I remember thinking that guy can definitely see the Edison device, Hmm. but my manager, who's a senior scientist, is not allowed to see that Theranos device. So it kind of, retrospectively, it gave me the feeling that the barricades were there not so much to prevent the trade secrets from getting out, but they were there to prevent people from being able to connect the dots from within. And the real trade secret was that there was no secret. There was no technology. So, and... A lot of the scientific community was genuinely working really hard to get these things to work. Hmm. There was kind of this cycle that you would see where someone would come in, they would be totally sold on the vision, they would be gung-ho, they would work 14 hours a day, they would try to get it to work, they thought they could change the culture, and they they just get beaten down, beaten down, beaten down until they quit. Hmm. And that was just kind of like the cycle that, that you would see. Eventually what happened to me and to Erica, and to most of my colleagues, yeah. Wow. So that was what the culture was like inside the company. But corporations are designed to have outside experts validate what's going on. Boards of directors, creditors, customers, and regulators. When those external checks fail, like with what happened at Enron, for example, that's when fraud can go undetected. I asked Tyler how Theranos could keep up the facade for so long. After all, they even had Walgreens as a major customer for a device that didn't even work. How did they get away with it? Well, so a lot of systems had to fail in order for Theranos to work. And I believe that they were engineered by Elizabeth so that they would fail. And if you think about like in a general company structure, there's a lot of checks and balances in place. You know, you have the executive team, you have board members, you have investors, you have employees, you have media. And all of those things existed at Theranos, but they were just they were just designed to not function the way that they were supposed to function. Hmm. So for instance, on the board you had my grandfather who is now 99 years old. And he got a bunch of his friends who are also well into their 80s or 90s who don't have backgrounds in medicine. So they don't really know what they're being told. And to be honest, they're a little bit past their prime. And then because they have such a fantastic board, she's able to raise a bunch of money from investors who then point to the board and say, hey, look, she must be the real deal. Otherwise, how could she have gotten that board? And right. Specifically, even she had Jim Mattis on her board, who was the soon to become Secretary of Defense for the United States. And on the Theranos website, she made up a quote from him saying that they were using this product in the battlefield. So if you're an investor and you go and Elizabeth tells you we're using this product in the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan and Jim Mattis is on the board, 
how are you going to do due diligence on that claim? Who would you better ask? Who is in a better position to know if that is true than Jim Mattis? Right. Nobody. So you don't question it. You believe it. But the investors were also, you know, pretty negligent. And I think one of the one of the funnier facts of, of this whole Theranos thing is that she was able to raise something like $900 million and not a single investor ever saw an audited financial statement. Which, oh my gosh, I never heard that detail. That's mind-blowing. Yeah, it is mind-blowing. I raised a million-dollar seed round and I have investors who have asked me for audited financial statements. And she yeah. raised several orders of magnitude more than that. And she was somehow able to talk her way around any kind of verification and due diligence. Then she also, they also had this partner, Walgreens. And Walgreens hired someone to go in and do due diligence on the technology before they you know, signed off on this big partnership deal. And he went in there and they wouldn't show him the product. So he went back to Walgreens and said, you should not do business with them. But they had this fear of missing out and they ignored the expert that they hired and they did business with them anyway. So there was just something about her charisma where she was able to get people to do things completely blindly. Nobody would get verification. Nobody would do due diligence. They would just believe her word. And to me, it started feeling like it was a cult following. Like she was like, her word was like the word of God. (laughs) It's like whatever she said was truth. And you just believed it was, it was, it was a faith. It was, it was a faith. You just had to have faith in Elizabeth. It's pretty notable that the board was just a bunch of old guys, right? I mean, yeah. that, especially for a Silicon Valley company. Like these days, there's a lot more pressure for diversity inclusion, especially at leadership levels. And so for a company of that size and, and notoriety, especially one run by a woman, it's pretty crazy that there were no other women on the board besides Elizabeth Holmes. I mean, how do you think it might have been different if there had been a couple of women on the board along with all these old guys? <laughs> well, I do think that women were much more skeptical of her in general. Mm. And she did have this kind of like charisma around her. And I think it worked especially well on men and especially well on older men where they just treated her more like a daughter than they did a CEO. I tell this story in in my Audible, but Elizabeth's 30th birthday party, I listened to Henry Kissinger read her a limerick that he wrote for her, where the punchline was, you're not the next Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was an earlier you. So they were just acting like these boys out on the schoolyard, just trying, just like vying for the attention of the prettiest girl, it felt like to me, rather than a board who would go in and, and actually question things and and represent the interests of the shareholders. And now for a word from our sponsor. Every organization has a culture around ethics, whether or not it's deliberate. As a leader, if you're not cultivating the right ethical environment, you're taking your chances that the people around you will make wise choices. At Merit Leadership, we help companies of any size do regular exercises to build a deliberate culture of ethics. Our Exercising Ethics program reflects the reality that culture comes from what we do together, not from looking at a screen on our desk. Whether you work in a small team or a company with thousands of employees, we provide engaging ethics exercises that get people talking and sharing their values. To learn more, 
click the link in the show notes or visit MeritLeadership.com. I don't want to simply retell Tyler's story of blowing the whistle, because it's already been told in better, more engaging ways than I ever could. In fact, I strongly recommend you listen to Tyler's Audible original called Thicker Than Water. We've linked to it in the show notes. In it, Tyler himself recounts the crazy experiences that he had with private investigators stalking him, even breaking into his own lawyer's car, and having a showdown with Theranos lawyers in his grandparents' living room. You can also read all about this in Bad Blood, the book by John Carreyrou. It has the makings of a Hollywood movie, which is in the works, by the way, and slated to star Jennifer Lawrence as Elizabeth Holmes. But anyway, the short version of Tyler's story is that he tried to raise concerns with Elizabeth and with his grandfather, George Saltz, who was on the Theranos board. Tyler's questions caused enough concerns about his nosiness that he was fired. Then, after leaving the company, he started communicating privately with Carrie Rue, who was writing an expose at the time for the Wall Street Journal. Eventually, Theranos figured out Tyler was a source for the article and sent the lawyers after him. One of them included David Boyce, the notoriously hard-nosed attorney who, among other things, helped Harvey Weinstein silence his accusers. As you can imagine, this was an incredibly trying time. Tyler's parents spent half a million dollars helping him with his legal defense. But throughout the experience, he insisted on doing the right thing. He was what any normal person would describe as courageous. But when you hear Tyler talk about it, he doesn't think of himself that way. On my last day when I left Theranos, Sonny Bolwani, the president of the company, described me as arrogant, ignorant, patronizing, and reckless. Hmm. And retrospectively, I think he was pretty spot on on three <laughs> out of the four of those things. I don't think I'm patronizing, but I think the other three things, it turned out to actually be true. And I look back on on what I was doing, and I was totally arrogant. I was totally ignorant. I was totally reckless. And things just worked out really well for me. I got super, super lucky in the end. And and it turns out that that Theranos was actually much worse than what I had even known. You know, as soon as regulators start digging into things, they find they found all kinds of things that I had no idea existed. So in a lot of ways, I I think I just I got really lucky, but I was very stubborn. I stuck to my guns. And ultimately what it came down to was I was not going to admit that I was wrong when I knew I was right. And I wasn't going to retract any kind of statement. I wasn't going to do any of that when I knew I was right. And when all these, you know, all this legal pressure came down on me, they wanted me to sign affidavits. And I'm not supposed to say exactly what was in a lot of those affidavits, but I didn't sign them. And my reasoning was I was not going to sign something under penalty of perjury that was not true. And what they were asking me to say, I did not believe was true. So in my mind, if I said what they wanted me to say, I would be committing perjury. And so, yeah, I was just really stubborn. <laughs> you know, I also talk about this in, in the Audible, but, you know, my parents sat me down and said, if you end up in a courtroom, a good case scenario is we spend $2 million and win. That is a good case scenario. They said, we will sell our house to pay for your legal fees, but please do not make us do that. Just sign whatever it is they want you to sign. This is not your responsibility. Let the Wall Street Journal handle it. Let the FDA handle it. Let CMS handle it. Let the SEC handle it. This is not 
your responsibility. You've done enough. Sign whatever it is they want you to sign and move on. And I just said, I'm, I'm not going to sign it because it's not true. What they want me to say is not true. Yeah. I, I love that. And I love the way you describe that because I think a lot of courage looks like stubbornness and it looks like recklessness, but it's based on a deeper core principle. I think the way you describe that illustrates how that looks in the extreme circumstance. Yeah, but at the same time, think of an alternate reality, okay? Where I, I refuse to sign this thing. They decide to sue me. They somehow show some data, you know, look, we have some things that work. I'm found guilty, maybe go to prison, end up with millions of dollars in legal fees. My parents sell their house. And that's kind of how the story ends. And you could look back and say, wow, before any of that happened, all you had to do was sign your name on a piece of paper and you could have made all that go away. And I think people see what I did as courageous because it turned out so well. Right. But what I didn't quite realize was how badly Theranos had to fail in order for me to win. Once CMS and FDA and SEC got in there, they just found an abundance of evidence, so much evidence. And I'm, I'm, I would be worried if I were to go through this similar type of process again, that if there weren't that strong abundance of evidence in my favor, that I would have ended up losing simply because they had the firepower that I didn't have. They had hundreds of millions of dollars to spend, and I didn't. They had the number one corporate gun lawyer in America, and I didn't. And you just realize that the cards are so stacked against you and when you're a whistleblower that in order to come out on top, you have to be right about things that you don't even know you're right about yet. <laughs> even though everything worked out for Tyler, does he have any regrets or things that he would have done differently? Luckily, everything worked out well for me, so I don't really have any regrets. Like, I don't look back on a decision and say, oh, man, that was a terrible decision. If I had done things differently, things would have worked out better. Luckily, I have none of those, but there's a ton that I would have done differently. Probably I would have done everything differently. I think, I mean, what I would have done differently is, number one, I would have consulted with a lawyer before I even left Theranos. So while, while I was still working there, I wish I spoke to a lawyer who said, this is what you can take out of Theranos. This is who you can give it to in a way that's protected. Because there are protected whistleblowing channels within the government that exist that I just did not know about, so I didn't use. So that's one thing I would have done differently. But if I'm thinking about like a, a decision that I made that I, I wish I had done differently, I can't really think of, like I don't really have any regrets. People tend to think of blowing the whistle as one big dramatic decision, the kind that you'd see in a movie. But that's not how it usually works, and it didn't work that way for Tyler. Ethical courage usually requires dozens or hundreds of hard decisions. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was just, I never even really saw myself as a whistleblower. I was really just reacting to situations as they came and I did the best mm. I could with the information and the knowledge that I had and I trusted my gut but there wasn't really a decision point where I thought okay I'm gonna blow the whistle on this it was so some of those kind of like slower cascading type events were you know first I spoke to my grandfather about it who was on the board of directors right then I spoke directly to the company executives I also reached out to actually a government entity and lodged a complaint about the way we did some kind of audit. Mm -hmm. and, and unfortunately, they 
essentially what happened to that complaint is that that they it got lost in the shuffle somehow so nothing ended up happening with it and then after that the the big big step was to speak to the wall street journal reporter john carreyrou and he initially contacted me on linkedin and i talked to my former manager at theranos about it i talked to my parents about it they said do not talk to him you know, it's great that he's looking into this, but stay out of it. It's not your responsibility. But I was just so curious about exactly what he knew, what the angle of the story would be. And it just, it bothered me to no end that she was on the cover of magazines, that she was the next Steve Jobs, that she was on, you know, Obama's board of innovators or whatever it was. And I just knew that there was no there there. And it just drove me insane. And even though I knew it wouldn't be in my best interest to contact that reporter, it was like trying to hold in a sneeze that was just going to come out. It was was just there was no way I could keep myself bottled up. So I eventually contacted him and, and gave him some information that he found to be very useful in his reporting. And then kind of a very similar situation to that was when I decided to go on the record because after the Wall Street Journal started publishing articles about Theranos, a year passes and my grandfather is still on the board, Theranos is still in business, and I feel like their lawyers and and Theranos is still pushing me around in a lot of ways. And I just felt like I really needed to stand up for myself. And this was another one of those instances where my parents just thought I was out of my mind for for trying to get more involved in this than I already was. But I just, it, it was just like that sneeze that I couldn't hold in. I just, it was like a compulsion. I just had to tell my story. I had to tell the stories I had about their lawyers and trapping me at my grandfather's right. house. And I just felt like I had, I had so much ammunition against them and they were still pushing me around. And I just felt like, why am I the one who needs to, to be bullied into silence here. I'm going to stand up for myself. I don't really care what the consequences are. I'm going to go, I'm going to go fight. I'm going to stand up for myself. Yeah. And had you not, one wonders how much farther they would have made it down the road before it all blew up and how much more damage could have been done in the meantime. And uh, I think that's one of the things that's so important to appreciate is that, you know, there are people who sometimes want to blow the whistle out of anger or frustration or whatever. And that's always going to be part of it, especially if you're mistreated. But I think there's something else going on here too, right? Which is that there were a lot of people, like patients, whose well-being was threatened because of what Theranos was doing. No, definitely. I mean, that was really the impetus for when I first started speaking up to my grandfather and to Mm -hmm. Elizabeth and Sonny and, you know, the executives directly was because... I did the validation studies on a syphilis test, and I thought the data clearly showed that this syphilis test did not work. But Theranos decided to launch it, that you could walk into Walgreens and get tested for syphilis. And that just that just scared me. Frankly, it scared me because I knew yeah. that we would be giving people incorrect diagnosis. I, I just knew it because I saw the data and I saw what, what we were working with. And I knew people were going to be getting bad syphilis data. And so that was really the first thing. Well, maybe not the first thing, but that was the the straw that broke the camel's back for me where I thought, okay, I need to speak up. And I thought it was a really clear example where the bad practices that we had led to bad data. 
and this product should not be available for public use. I thought it was just so clear. I thought it was an argument that I could win maybe with with the executive team and maybe they would go, oh, you're right. You know, maybe we need to slow things down a little bit, backtrack, try to do science the right way. But no, that's not yeah. what happened. <laughs> you know, it's, it's fascinating that syphilis is the example too. So I teach the Tuskegee uh, syphilis t- study that was done in Mississippi in the 30s and mm-hmm. 40s where yeah. they were telling men they were treating them for syphilis when they weren't. Yes. And what's really scary about syphilis is the disease is when it enters its latent stage, it can be doing all kinds of nervous or organ damage or brain damage in a way that's asymptomatic. So if you get a Theranos test saying you're negative for syphilis, but you actually have it, not only could you be potentially spreading it to other people, but it could be wreaking havoc inside your body. You wouldn't know until it's way too late. Yes, that is exactly what I was thinking, because with this disease, especially since we had that study where it's very clear what syphilis does if you don't treat it. Right. It's one of those diseases where if you get a correct diagnosis and and the the test says you're positive for syphilis and you catch it early and you get treatment, it's really not that big of a deal. It's yeah. really not. But if you're told you don't have syphilis and you do and you just let it go untreated, it can wreak havoc and it can yeah. kill you eventually. And of course, you can also spread it to other people. So... That was why I was terrified. <laughs> yeah. the, st- the stakes just seemed really high. And at that time, I think we were only offering seven tests that were actually run on the Theranos platform and everything else we were sending out to labs or running them on third-party equipment in our own, in our own labs. Hmm. So syphilis just seemed, you know, it, was, it would have been like the eighth thing. And it, to me, it felt like the stakes were just way too high for that one to be kind of messing around with people's health. Blowing the whistle against a huge, well-resourced company is not the kind of thing you want to do alone. Who are the people who help make the experience easier for Tyler? Yeah, my parents were were awesome. They supported me no matter what. No matter how strongly they disagreed with me, they always supported me, which is not easy to do as a parent. So I, I really appreciate that from them. I could openly talk about the problems that I was seeing with some of the senior scientists and they would they would say, yes, we see the exact same problem. You're not crazy. Mm-hmm. This this is not a good scientific method. This product is not working. So I, I was able to get a lot of validation by talking to people who had a lot more experience and who were a lot smarter than I was. And then kind of as I was going through the whistleblowing experience, I, th- I had two friends who, who I was really close with. And I, I again, I didn't tell them anything about what was going on, but they could tell I was very stressed. And so... They, we, we just hung out probably like four or five days a week and we would play music together. And I, I just love playing music. So we would just sit around the living room. I'd play guitar and we would sing together. And that was the best stress relief that I could have possibly asked for. So those little jam nights definitely helped me get through. Are there any lingering burdens for Tyler from his time at Theranos? After all, he still has a whole life ahead of him. I would say the only lingering thing is the trial, and I just really want it to right. be done with. It just keeps getting pushed, keeps getting pushed, and I just want it to happen and for it to be over and then really just finally get closure on this. I really just want it to be over because I first met Elizabeth when I was 19 years old, and I turned 30 in November. Wow. So this has been, you know, this has been my life for a yeah. long time. It has completely consumed my 20s. And I just want that book to close and then my 30s will just start a whole new chapter and hopefully my 30s will be better. 
That new chapter for Tyler is very exciting. Flux Bioscience has an opportunity to help a lot of people. I asked him if his time at Theranos has influenced how he's running Flux. I think the biggest difference is making sure that there's a culture where everyone knows that it's okay to disagree with each other. Mm. And at Theranos, you were just not allowed to disagree with, with this idea that the, the product was revolutionizing the world. Like you just couldn't disagree with that. You, it was like, you, you weren't allowed to acknowledge bad data. You weren't allowed to, you know, if you can't acknowledge that things aren't working, then you can't improve them. And at my company, I just want to make sure that everyone is comfortable voicing concerns over either the way things are done or if they, their interpretation of data. And we have arguments all the time. And I think it's actually really healthy because it means we're communicating and we can have arguments. Luckily in science, you can actually oftentimes design an experiment and then figure out what was actually happening. And maybe I was saying that A is happening and my coworker was saying B was happening, but then we run an experiment to see what was actually happening. It turns out neither of us were right and it was something else that we hadn't thought of before. So I think the biggest thing is just having a culture where people are allowed to disagree and that there's a healthy way to express it and to resolve it. You can tell that Tyler is going to continue to make a big impact on the world. Here at the end of the interview, listen to how clearly he sees what needs to come next for him. He's taken the original noble vision of Theranos and is seeing it through for real. Well, I I hope that we were able to put a Flux product into someone's home. So mm-hmm. I, I want to be able to just get to that point. You know, I, I will. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of success in that because there's so much work that has to happen in order for that um, to actually take place. And whether that happens as, you know, as we're our own entity or if we're acquired and whoever we're acquired by ends up putting it in someone's home, either of those paths is great. I just hope that we are able to actually put this diagnostic product in someone's home. I think that would just be a huge milestone for, for diagnostics and for science. I hope that none of you ever have to blow the whistle and take the risks that Tyler did. But the odds are very good that you will have to stand up for what's right from time to time. There are some great lessons to learn from Tyler's experience. You'll have more success, for example, if you do your research and get an outside perspective. Have good people in your corner who can give you courage and help you feel supported. Finally, Standing up for what's right might mean you're called arrogant, ignorant, or any other accusations like the ones that were hurled at Tyler. But that doesn't mean you're wrong. Because of Tyler and the other brave people at Theranos like Erica Chung, a lot more harm was averted. Hopefully Tyler's experience will help you trust that you can have the same courage that he did when it mattered most. Many thanks to my guest, Tyler Schultz. He's so friendly and fun to talk to, I look forward to seeing the big difference that he will continue to make in the world. Be sure to check out his Audible original called Thicker Than Water. It has 4.7 stars and thousands of positive reviews. You can find it at audible.com. If you enjoy How to Help, please take a moment to give us a positive review in your podcast directory of choice. It really means a lot to us and it helps other people discover it too. And be sure to subscribe so that way you get future episodes automatically. Also, please check out the newsletter for how to help. I use it to highlight effective organizations that are making a big difference in the world and how you can make a difference in your life too. You can find it at how-to-help.com.
Be sure to join me in the next episode when I talk with Chaplain George Eustra. He's the former command chaplain of the U.S. Special Operations Command and also the former chaplain for the Joint Chief. He's also a six foot eight former Green Beret, and he's going to be talking about character, service, and sacrifice, and the role of chaplains in the U.S. military. We're grateful, as always, to Merit Leadership, who sponsors this podcast, and to our production team, which included Cindy Hall, Travis Stevenson, yours truly, and Eric Robertson, who did the editing and the music. Our music comes from the Pleasant Pictures Music Club. If you want to use their music in your projects, you can find a link and a discount code in our show notes. Finally, as always, thank you so much for listening. I'm Aaron Miller, and this has been How to Help.